thank you, Tom, for praying for us. Well, today is Pentecost Sunday. It's one of the three historical Christian feasts that all relate to Jesus Christ. Of course, we're very familiar with Christmas, and at Christmas time, we celebrate the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the eternal Son who became man. At Easter, we celebrate Jesus Christ's death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave. And at Pentecost, we celebrate his exaltation into glory again and his granting of the Holy Spirit as a gift to his church. So Pentecost is the anniversary of the coming of the Holy Spirit upon the church for the empowerment of the church in its proclamation of the gospel for all peoples and for the displaying of his power through our radically transformed lives. I want to pray again briefly as we open the word this morning in John chapter 3. Lord Jesus, we exalt you this morning as our eternal God and Redeemer, and we thank you so much for your blessings upon our lives and upon us as your people, not only in our salvation, but also in granting to us the gift of your very presence through the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. May you guide us as we study the scriptures this morning. Amen. Well, you know, um, my birthday was yesterday, so yes, thank you, thank you. So, but today is Pentecost, and I was reborn on Pentecost Sunday. So that's my spiritual birthday. My spiritual birthday is connected to Pentecost, and it just so happens that this year they're really close together. And, uh, and so I've been a Christian now, I've been born again for 37 years, and uh, it's just been a joy walking with the Lord all these years. Well, you know, a lot of, let's talk about, we're going to talk about being born again this morning. Jesus is the one who said it, you must be born again. And so it's in John chapter 3, and you can turn to your Bibles there. We'll begin in verse 1 in a moment. But, you know, many people who would call themselves Christians believe that they're Christians because they were born into a warm and loving spiritual home, and they themselves stayed that way, and so they just assume they're Christians. Many people believe they're Christians because they grew up in a good Bible teaching and mission-oriented church, and they're still very active in their church. And so they think, this is why they're Christians. So many Christians believe that they're Christians because they made a decision, and they had an experience once upon a time to become a Christian. Many Christians believe that they're Christians because they know a lot about the Bible and they do a lot of good things for people in their community. Many people think they're Christians because they live the lifestyle that normal Christians around them live. Many Christians think that they're Christians because they have their doctrine all lined up for inspection and they're confident that they will get an A on the test. Many Christians believe they're Christians because they belong to a traditional Christian church and they're good moral people and they trust the church. And so when it comes to these born-again types, they consider those the radical form of Christianity, too weird, too committed, too intense, too zealous, too charismatic, too emotional, too something or another. But being born-again Christian is considered by them as really unnecessary in order to be a Christian. 
In fact, why can't those born-again types just be more normal and just follow life the way I live it? And they will be accepted before God. So I wonder if these self-identified Christians have ever really thoughtfully considered the conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus in chapter 3 of the Gospel according to John. You know, interestingly, I also find that many born-again Christians are embarrassed by the term and rarely even talk about it. You know, and it's true that, you know, born-again terminology is really redundant. I mean, to say you're a born-again Christian is a redundant way of speaking uh, because it's really synonymous with just being a true Christian, according to Jesus. And it can imply, when you say that, that somehow you could be a Christian, you just don't have to be the born-again type. So, yeah, I guess it can be a confusing way to speak sometimes. But nevertheless, the born-again experience is none other than the fulfillment of the promise of the work of the Holy Spirit in the New Covenant. And we really should talk about it a lot. It's precisely the conversion that Jesus bought for us on the cross. So please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 3, verses 1 to 15, and let's listen to Jesus teach about the new birth. And we'll just read the story as we go along, because it's such a fascinating story as it unfolds, because Jesus is the one who said, you must be born again. And then there's these three interchanges in this conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus that really answer three questions. The first question in the verses 1 to 3 is, why must a person be born again? The second question in verses 4 through 8, simply, how does a person become born again? And then finally, in verses 9 to 15, what is the authoritative basis for being born again? So let's take a look at the first question. Why must a person be born again? And so we begin in John chapter 3, verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now Nicodemus was a Pharisee, in other words, he was a teacher, and he was a member of the Sanhedrin, the ruling council. In AD 6, the Jews were able to rule themselves underneath the Romans. But very little is actually known about the character of Nicodemus. I mean, we've run into him later in the Gospel of John. In John chapter 7, we see him timidly defending Jesus uh, before his own colleagues in the Sanhedrin. And then, of course, at the end of the Gospel in chapter 19, uh, he helps Joseph of Arimathea take care of the crucified body of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, some believe in the end that Nicodemus actually became a true disciple of Jesus. However, that's not necessarily the case. We don't have enough evidence for that and probably shouldn't be pressed. Perhaps he stands, as we'll find this morning, I think, as really a pathetic character that just stands there showing us that something more is needed. More than just moral uprightness. More than just decency. And that, what we need, is regeneration, to be born again. In fact, if we read through the Gospel of John, I mean, the very next story of the Samaritan woman will illustrate what true salvation looks like and the results in that very next episode. Perhaps this dialogue took place shortly after Jesus cleansed the temple there in chapter 2. We read about it and Jesus performing many signs. 
and they might have prompted Nicodemus to approach Jesus. So if you just glance back in chapter 2, verse uh, 23, speaking of Jesus, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. So maybe Nicodemus viewed Jesus as a reformer that was on his side, supporting pious religion and would have been opposed to the other party, the Sadducees. But Nicodemus would be surprised by Jesus' statements indicating that pious devotion to the law is not enough. But a radical rebirth, a fundamental change of being is necessary in order to enter the kingdom of God. You see, Jesus was not a reformer. He was a radical. He's the son of God. He's the Messiah who came from heaven. And then we read that Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night. Well, it could be simply a recording of a simple fact that it's nighttime. It could be the fact that it's pointing to prudence on his part as a member of the ruling party, of the ruling Sanhedrin, and avoiding publicity, you know, having a conversation with a radical like Jesus. Maybe it's because he wanted to have Jesus to himself and have an un, uh, undistracted conversation with him. It could be any or all of these, but most think that John... The Gospel, the Apostle John records it because of the symbolism of darkness, that it represents Nicodemus' spiritual condition, that is, that he's dark, darkened in his understanding. In fact, it's very common imagery in the Bible, and especially in John's writings, the Gospel as well as his epistles. While Nicodemus was impressed with Jesus' signs, apparently, what he did in the temple and maybe some of the words and things he taught and some of the actions he took and miracles that he performed, and he wants to know more about Jesus from Jesus himself. Now, you think about it, that's a really good idea. You know, I don't know about you, but I found a lot of people today that have a lot of ideas about Jesus, most of which I don't know where they get them from. I mean, most of them, I think, just come from their own heads. They want Jesus to be like themselves. But you know, if you really want to find out what Jesus is like, well, then read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you'll find out from Jesus himself who Jesus is. Well, anyway, Nicodemus wants to hold this discussion teacher to teacher. And maybe their disciples were present, some of Nicodemus's and some of Jesus. Notice that Nicodemus uses the word we, at the, it could be the editorial we, but more likely it's a way of hiding himself and his colleagues by using the term we, because you don't have to formally commit yourself to a viewpoint. People do this all the time. Oh, you know, some people say, right? I mean, this is the language that cowards use because they're unwilling to put themselves forward. And then notice how he compliments Jesus by calling him rabbi. But Nicodemus knows that Jesus didn't have the proper, proper formal training to be called rabbi. It's patronizing. And he even cautiously acknowledges that Jesus is from God, meaning that God was with him. However, Nicodemus failed to recognize the true identity of Jesus, that he was the Messiah, the Son of God. And so actually Jesus interrupts Nicodemus in his flowery introduction before Nicodemus can even get to his question. Jesus jumps in and provides the answer to the question that Nicodemus was going to ask anyway. Jesus doesn't respond with the same courtesies, you notice. And later on, Jesus is going to mock Nicodemus in verse 10, as if he were a good teacher, doesn't even know the Bible. 
Now, Jesus doesn't entrust himself to Nicodemus and his motives. Go back to the, to the very beginning, right before our text that we're in this morning. We already read John 2.23, but read on here. John 2.23 says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing, but Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. In other words, you could summarize it as the people believed in Jesus, but Jesus didn't believe in them because he knew what was in the heart of a human being, sin and false faith. Jesus doesn't accept Nicodemus's ability to apprehend the truth about who he is as the Son of God. In fact, this being right before our passage that we're looking at today is another indication that the Nicodemus story illustrates exactly that point that Jesus is making. He didn't trust Nicodemus. And in fact, if you read the Gospel of John, this is how John presents salvation throughout the whole Gospel. We get examples of both sides all the way through. He'll give contrasting examples of people who had true faith and people who had false faith. It's a fascinating read. You can read the Gospel of John on your own. Well, Jesus tells him immediately what he wants to know. How do you get eternal life? How do you enter the kingdom of God? Especially in its final form. You know, this, is, this place in the Gospel of John the kingdom of God is referring to eternal life, and the only other place that's used in this gospel is in 18, chapter 18, verse 36, when Jesus is talking to Pilate and simply says, my kingdom is not of this world. So Jesus pushes aside all this law-keeping that Nicodemus would have been promoting, this human striving to try to please God in our own efforts, and he declares that the only way you're going to get in is you have to be born again. You have to be born from above. You have to be born anew, all legitimate translations. You see, it's not a process of observing and reasoning and trying to believe yourself into the kingdom by your own willpower. So why must we be born again? If you want to see salvation, see the kingdom, know God, have eternal life. Be according to the apostle John, see here in our text means to see spiritually now the kingdom as well as to see fully later the reality when it comes in its fullness. In the Apostle John's writings as well, this word see also carries the connotation of knowing something, having an intimate experience. If you want to have an intimate experience with God, that's what being born again is all about, experiencing his power and his salvation. And the absolute certainty of this truth is emphasized by the double amen. Jesus says, truly, Truly. And you'll notice that in every single response in our story today, Jesus says, truly, truly. Remember, it's Jesus himself who said you must be born again. It's not something that evangelicals made up. It came from the Bible. To be born from above implies that there has to be some kind of a supernatural, fundamental change to our being. And this Nicodemus perceives this, but doesn't understand and Jesus will further explain. So we get to the question too, how does a person become born again? And we read then following, starting in verse 4. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? 
Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So Nicodemus answers in these very natural, physical terms. Yet, you know, it seems very clear that Jesus is speaking about spiritual reality. So we wonder why Nicodemus answers in such a dull way. I mean, surely he's a very brilliant man, and he understands what's going on in this conversation. In fact, his questions really do, un- really do reveal the fact that he knows where Jesus is going. He just doesn't really want to go there. So we wonder if he's being obtuse, choosing not to understand, because he knows exactly where this is going, and it's his religious pride that's in the way, and maybe this born-again stuff might be okay for the Gentiles, but, you know, I'm essentially in because I'm a teacher of the law. Now, some people, some interpreters would suggest a very opposite approach almost here, that somehow there's this wistful agreement on the part of Nicodemus with Jesus, which would go something like, you know, in fact, oh, Jesus, I know that man is just a product of this life, and we can't start over, we can't relive it, we can't change our fundamental nature. And if that's impossible, certainly the spiritual regeneration that you're talking about, that's impossible too. Jesus, I just wish it were true. But as you read this episode, there is a lot more tension in this story than that interpretation would lend itself to. And perhaps the best way to see Nicodemus' response is some type of scorn or disdain. People can't change the core of who they are. So what are you talking about? So Jesus then retorts incredulously himself, and here's your second truly, truly, and Jesus emphatically and solemnly declares that being born anew, this is what it is. It's being born of water and spirit. And the phrase, of course, here has been interpreted in many different ways, but there are three common ones that are not likely, so I thought I would share those with you. Because I think what's likely is actually pretty simple. But so some see water here as referring to John the Baptist's, he wasn't really a Baptist, so he's John the Baptizer. Right? So John the Baptizer, right, that it was talking about his baptism of, of repentance and purification. And this would require Nicodemus to accept the baptism of John and then Jesus' spirit baptism. However, John's soon going to be gone from the scene and this condition wouldn't actually really hold anymore. Besides, something more likely is pretty evident as we proceed. Others will see water here as referring to procreation or natural birth. And that would mean that there's a reference to natural birth instead of spiritual birth. Now, we get to that later in the text, but not here. There is no evidence of the term born of water being used this way in ancient literature from the time period that would refer to natural birth. So you don't have evidence for that view. Besides, the syntax here is really suggesting a unity of the two concepts, not some kind of a disjunction of two different things. And so if we did take the words together, what might be being said would be you need to be born of spiritual seed. That's getting much closer to the meaning, actually. 
but it's a little bit too, too subtle for the interpretation. There's a clearer way yet to understand this. And then finally, others would take water as referring to Christian baptism. But Nicodemus, of course, would not be able to perceive this condition. According to verse 10, Nicodemus is already supposed to know all this. So that's really the key to the interpretation of the whole passage. Nicodemus was supposed to know all about this. So it clearly, he, Jesus is emphasizing the power of the Spirit. It's not talking about some kind of a spiritual ceremony or a rite. You know, in fact, some so-called Christian groups that tend to be more cultic will often develop a heretical doctrine out of this passage called baptismal regeneration. And in events, they'll say you're actually saved by water baptism. And it's interesting how it often goes. It's only baptism in their church. Ah, that should be a sign there's something wrong there. And it doesn't work anywhere else. So what is clear is that Jesus is speaking of one rebirth that is both of water and spirit. And then additionally, Nicodemus in verse 10 is already supposed to understand all this. So where do you think we should go to find the answer? Probably the Old Testament, because Nicodemus is a teacher and he should know these things. In fact, there are many passages in Isaiah and Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the Psalms that would help illuminate this. But perhaps the most clear illusion comes from Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27, which simply says this, speaking of the new covenant that would come, the prophet speaks for God and says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean from all your uncleanliness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You see, this is really the easy answer. And most likely the reference to Jesus, as most scholars would contend, you know, water and spirit and as we'll get to in a minute, wind, which in our passage here, wind and spirit are the same word in Greek. They all, talk, they all talk about things that come from above. And they're used in the Old Testament to talk about spiritual renewal that God would bring. And of course, ultimately, this is talking about the new covenant. That's what Jesus is saying. It's what the Apostle John is saying. Is it's now fulfilled in his coming. And so in this description of water and spirit together, it actually clarifies the meaning it indicates that we do need to be cleansed from iniquity thoroughly and that we need a spiritual renewal thoroughly transformed. We have to partake of the divine nature. This would be fully realized by believers after Jesus' resurrection and ascension and the giving of the Holy Spirit from Pentecost forward. It would be the radical experience of new covenant believers. So in other words, born of water and spirit is just simply another way of saying born of the Spirit, which is where we're going to in the next verse. And verse 6 makes very clear, and other passages saying the same thing about regeneration. Jesus states that spiritual regeneration is necessary to enter the kingdom of God, and this forever excludes human merit as the basis of salvation. Religious performance is not going to get anybody into heaven. But you know, that's who we are at the core of our being as fallen, sinful beings, we create religions to try to get to God, but none of them even work. Leon Morris said that it's the perennial heresy 
of the natural man to think that he can fit himself by his own efforts for the kingdom of God. I mean, we're so gripped by sin that we have to be born again. We have to have our nature changed. There's no other way. And so verse 6 states this generally, except truth, proving the need for rebirth, that flesh begets flesh. That's talking about natural. And spirit begets spirit. That is, the weak and natural can only produce after its kind. And it's the spirit of God that is powerful and creates a new nature and creates a spiritual life. In other words, there is no process of natural interchange to get from the fleshly nature to the spiritual. And so, in other words, I've met some of these people actually, maybe you have too, they have a plan to be born again someday. It sounds sort of silly, but not to them. I mean, they have a plan that somehow they're going to get there someday, but they never really make it. Obviously confused about a lot of things, but it's only by God's doing that we're reborn, that we're made new, that we're given spiritual life and can enter the kingdom of God. You can't make yourself born again. So then in verses, verse 7, Nicodemus should not be bewildered at this teaching that someone has to be born again. Rather, he should readily accept it because there is no other way, and so should we. We should stop being surprised when Jesus teaches surprising things because that's what Jesus does. You read the gospel accounts, that's what he's constantly doing. He's teaching these surprising things. And then we get to verse 8, and Jesus explains how it works and why Nicodemus can't fully understand it. And he says, the wind blows where it wishes. This is the same word for spirit. And as I mentioned already in the Old Testament, these are images of renewal from heaven. And the wind blows where it wishes, and one can hear its sound and see its effects, but you can't discern its origin or its destination. So the spirit regenerates whomever he wishes, whenever he wishes, wherever he wishes, however he wishes. Of course, it always comes with the proclamation of the gospel. And the effects are changed people, people that are born of the Spirit and have put their faith in this Jesus, the Christ. This work of the Spirit can't be understood as something from man's reason or controlled by man's theology. And furthermore, without rebirth, a person remains truly ignorant about these things, and that's where we see Nicodemus. So how can a person be born again? By the work of the Spirit. So there are two metaphors in our passage up to this point. We have a birth metaphor, and we have a wind metaphor. So what do they imply about salvation that we've already seen here? To summarize, for example, the first, there are three things. First of all, that the power is God's. It's not people's. So I think about the birth metaphor. It's a very simple question. Did you give birth to yourself, or did God make it happen? Pretty simple question. Think about the wind for a minute. Do you cause the winds to blow? Or does God cause them to blow? So the power belongs to God in making someone born again. The choice, secondly, is also God's. When you think about the birth metaphor, did you choose when and where you were going to be born and who your parents were going to be? Of course not. God picked those things. And with the wind metaphor, I mean, do you determine when the wind is going to blow, how strong it's going to blow, I mean, that would be really nice. But we know that only God makes those choices. And thirdly, the results are from God, what we see. 
And so you even think about the birth metaphor. So when you were born, did you give yourself life? Do you even give yourself life now? Or did God give you life? And does he sustain your life? Think about the wind metaphor and how like the wind might cause the sand to blow around or the trees to bend over or the clouds to move. All we do is observe what God does. You see, so which comes first? New birth or faith in Christ? And why is it so important? New birth comes first, it comes before faith. Although in our own experience, it's all simultaneous when we, put, we hear the gospel and we put our faith in Jesus Christ. But it's the spirit that's working in our hearts that causes us to be born again first so that we can put our faith in Jesus, so we can see who he really is as the savior we need. It's God who grants us the ability to believe in him. It can't come from ourselves. There's nothing there. Salvation is a gift of God's grace. It's, it's God-given faith. And we don't take it from him by self-made faith or some special prayer or incantation. This is how we'll see it happen, actually. In the stories in the Gospel of John, this is another, we're in the introduction to the Gospel of John. And John loves telling stories about how people come to true faith in Christ. And you see, the wind blows wherever it wishes, and you'll be surprised who these people are as you read the stories. You'll be surprised. And that's how we experienced it too, our own salvation in our life and how it happened to us and how it happens to people that we know who've come to Christ. Again, it was Jesus, he just simply stated a very basic spiritual truth when he said, you must be born again. And so then finally we come to what's the authoritative basis for being born again at the end of the passage in verses 9 through 15. So Nicodemus said to him, well, how can these things happen? And Jesus said, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you don't understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you don't receive our testimony. If I've told you earthly things and you don't believe, how then can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So Nicodemus, second incredulous response in verse 9, confounded by this necessity of spiritual regeneration, rebirth for eternal life with God. I mean, he taught people very faithfully how to obey the law and how to show their devotion to God and how to submit their lives to God. So he's quite skeptical at this teaching of Jesus. I mean, this is very similar when you think about it to the religious Christians of our day. They do their best to please God and insist on this and their devotion to him that it's enough. Well, Nicodemus is not just asking, well, how can these things be? He's asking, how can these things happen to people? I mean, that's just too amazing to think about. It's too different than what we've been teaching. And so then we get Jesus' full and final explanation, verses 10 to 15, and he reproves Nicodemus for being ignorant of choosing not to believe these things and reminding him, you are a teacher of Israel. So now we're going to watch Jesus school Nicodemus. 
So Nicodemus should know that no one can come to God in his own strength, in his own righteousness. I mean, no one's good enough. In fact, surely Nicodemus has seen this himself as he teaches people to obey and they don't obey. They can't obey. Surely he's seen that in his own heart and life, that no matter how hard he tries, he can't fully obey God. Have you felt that? So why should he be so astonished at Jesus' teaching about being born again, especially since he knows about the promise of the coming of the Spirit in the New Covenant? He's read the prophets. He knows that Ezekiel passage that Jesus was probably alluding to. Notice the third, truly, truly. Jesus claims that what he's spoken concerning rebirth is reliable. He has true knowledge of it, and he offers true testimony concerning it. Nicodemus simply will not receive, accept, believe the witness of Jesus Christ. Jesus, notice he now speaks in the plural we. He says, well, we teach what we know. Maybe Jesus is using the editorial we. Some thinks Jesus is including his disciples who might be around him at this time and, and witnessing this whole interchange. Some think it's a broader definition to everyone who's on his side, starting with John the baptizer and his followers and all the followers of Jesus. A few believe that Jesus is speaking here about the Father and himself. But most likely, it's a sarcastic application of the plural response that Nicodemus set out at the beginning because Nicodemus decided he wanted to be smart about the whole conversation. And so Jesus retorts in the same way. Well, we speak about what we know. I mean, Jesus is like that. I mean, the more you read the Gospels, the more you sort of realize, yeah, he would say something like that. Jesus is stating what he knows. He's talking, he knows what he's talking about. So do his followers. But Nicodemus, you and your followers, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't understand these basic truths. And it's clear that Jesus brings the, the true witness to this truth. Nicodemus just refuses to accept it, accept it. And so he's guilty of not accepting the truth of Scripture. In verses 12 then to 13, Jesus reverts back to the first person in the story and draws attention to himself and he simply states that if he's explained earthly things to Nicodemus, like his ministry, the signs he performed, the rebirth that he's been talking about, and most especially this elementary stuff about the kingdom of God that is now observable with him on the scene, and if he doesn't believe and, and observe all that right now, well, then there's no way he's going to understand if Jesus were to talk to him about heavenly things concerning the future kingdom of God. You have to be born again to understand these things. Nicodemus, the teacher, you see, has to start over. He has to be born again to relearn the scriptures. But furthermore, Jesus tells Nicodemus that he himself alone is qualified to speak concerning the kingdom. That's because no human being has ever gone into heaven to talk with God and come back and explain them to people, except Jesus. And so human beings, earthly people, we're incapable of penetrating the majestic counsel of God. God is the one who has to grant revelation. But Jesus claims, well, he came down from heaven. That's where he started, as the eternal son of God, God himself. And he maintains this eternal communion with the Father as the son. And he references himself by referencing the prophet Daniel when he calls himself the son of man. And if you go back to Daniel chapter 7 and you read about this person, the son of man in Daniel chapter 7, you find out very quickly, this is no normal man. This is a divine human person. 
It's the Messiah. It's a figure who in Daniel 7 receives the kingdom of God. So who can speak authoritatively about the kingdom of God? Only the Son of Man. He can speak authoritatively. I mean, even if you go back to the beginning of the John's gospel, and you look at John chapter 1, verse 18, how the apostle opens the story, he says, no one's ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. And that's a major theme, of course, of the gospel of John, is Jesus making known the truth about spirituality. And so finally, we get to verses 13 to 15, and we get to really answer Nicodemus's question, like, so how do these things, I mean, how can this be? How can this happen to people that they could be born anew? And, and we read in verses 13 to 15 that, well, it's because of Jesus' incarnation. It's because of him coming from heaven, leaving his glory, taking on humanity. It's because of his crucifixion that he would die for our sins. It's because of his resurrection that it was received as the appropriate payment. It's because of his ascension into glory and granting the spirit to his people. And Jesus ends this conversation with a bold assertion of the whole purpose of his life and his death and resurrection and exaltation is to provide eternal life and entrance to the kingdom of God to those who would believe in him, to those who would be born of the spirit and actually believe him for who he is and what he did and have eternal life. Do you believe? Well, then Jesus states his mission from the Father is like that of the bronze serpent in the hand of Moses. So this story comes from Numbers 21, but it's a story even at the time when Jesus was on earth that people understood as a story about salvation, not just some historical event, but talking about salvation. And so I'll read it to you. It comes from the period of Exodus, about 1,500 years earlier than where we are in the, in the Bible storyline at the moment in John right now. It's about their Exodus journey from Egypt to the Promised Land. And in Numbers 21, it's four, it begins. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away these serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. As the serpent was lifted up as a reminder of sin for the sparing of the life for those who looked, that means those who trusted, and repented. So Jesus would be lifted up on the cross for sin and fulfill his glorious mission to save those who would look upon him in faith and repentance, and he would grant them eternal life. Have you looked upon Jesus? This is God's plan, to grant life in Christ to all those who believe from among all peoples. Among the Gentiles of the world, Jesus said later in John chapter 12, 
And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Of course, there's a double meaning here in being lifted up regarding Jesus. He was lifted up on the cross, being humiliated for our sin. But he was also lifted up to exaltation, to glory. In John 6, 40, it says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So what's the authoritative basis of being born again? It's Jesus himself, his teaching, his being lifted up on the cross and lifted up to glory for it. So we should think about a couple questions, perhaps. One is, why doesn't human philosophy and religion or other spiritual endeavors, why don't they make way the entrance to eternal life or the kingdom of God or heaven? Why aren't our ideas or other people's ideas acceptable or good enough? Well, simply put, they don't have any authority. They don't have any authority from God. They're not true revelation from him. I mean, you think about it. They're just ideas. I mean, what will be your ultimate source of spiritual authority? Yourself? Or is it the Word of God? Scripture? You know, what makes Jesus unique among the world's pursuits for eternal life? Well, he's the Son of God from heaven who reveals truth and salvation. He's the only one who's been lifted up to look upon. He's the only one who's been lifted up for sin, to be received into the heavenly glory by the Father. He's the only one who's to be looked upon in faith and repentance for a true and full hope of salvation. Jesus is the one who said, you must be born again. You ever have trouble witnessing the gospel to the good religious person? I mean, I think we all have, surely. In fact, there are many good religious people in New Jersey, I've found. But you know what? It's not unique to New Jersey. I mean, we all live in interesting contexts throughout our lives. But you know, I've found that it's pretty much true everywhere I've lived and everywhere I've traveled in the world, it's the same thing. The good religious person, pick any religion. They're hard to witness to about the truth of the gospel and, and to tell them about how they can be saved by just simply putting their faith in Jesus and repenting of their sins. Not that complicated. So here's a witnessing tip. Bring up the fact that Jesus is the one who said you have to be born again. It's not your idea. I mean, you didn't come up with it. It isn't just like American evangelicals speak or something. Jesus said it. And that's sure to get a conversation going with certain people, like it did with Nicodemus didn't like that storyline. And then, you know, you can go over the answers to these three important questions. So why does a person have to be born again? Well, that's because the sin problem is such a big problem. It's so thoroughgoing, it affects the core of our being, our hearts, and everything we do and think. That's why. Now, how's a person going to be born again? Well, obviously, it can't come from us. Internally, there's nothing really good there. It has to come from a solution from outside of us, from the Holy Spirit's work. And what's the basis of being born again? It's Jesus. What's the authority behind it all? It's what Jesus said. It's what the scriptures teach. It's, it's really just the gospel, telling people again about the story 
of Jesus coming from heaven to earth and living a perfect life and dying on the cross for our sins and being raised for our justification and promise of eternal life. And the fact that he's reigning in heaven now and he's going to be coming back in all his glory to give a wonderful entrance to the kingdom of God in its final form to all those who believe in him. It's really simple. You know, and while you're sharing these things, you can share your own story about how God just broke into your life, you know, like the wind blows wherever it wishes in our story today, and he saved you. He made you see Jesus in a new way. You never saw him that way before. You didn't know he died for your sins, but now you do, and you put your faith in him. To be born again, to be born anew, to be born from above, to be born by the Spirit, they're all the same idea. It's all speaking about becoming a new creation of God and to experience this fundamental change of being where you're spiritually converted, where you're spiritually alive and you know the difference. You can feel it. And you can see the transformation in your life and other people see it too. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, the Apostle Paul writes, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Our lives are very different now having been born again. So having reviewed this morning this very basic doctrine of Christianity, spiritual rebirth, as taught by Jesus himself, there are other places in the New Testament we could go to, but as taught by Jesus himself, it should be greatly renewing to our minds and hearts about the purpose of our life. It clarifies Jesus' vision for our life. It clarifies salvation. It realigns our thoughts and our commitments to Christian living. The Apostle Paul also wrote in Titus chapter 3, he saved us, not on the basis of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. May you have a Wonderful Pentecost Sunday, celebrating the rebirth. Let me pray for us, and we'll continue our worship this morning. Father, we thank you so much for this spiritual renewal that you have given to us by the power of your Holy Spirit in our lives, that he made us alive. When we were dead in our sins, you made us alive to Christ, and you caused us to see and put our faith in Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of glory. We thank you, Holy Spirit, too, that not only have you opened our eyes to the truth, but you live within us and cause us to understand even more of the richness that Jesus has purchased for us as we read the scriptures that you wrote as you carried along the apostles and the prophets to write scripture. We thank you, Lord God, for this new life we have, this new life that we can live even as we live in this world, and we thank you for the eternal life that is going to be ours soon and that will be all glory and all true life. We pray these things for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Well, in response to the to the service.